Book One, Chapter Seven, of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. Having stated the rules which we must follow in speaking, I will now proceed to lay down the rules which must be observed when we write. Such rules are called orthography by the Greeks. Let us style it the science of writing correctly. This science does not consist merely in the knowledge of the letters composing each syllable. Such a study is beneath the dignity of a teacher of grammar, but, in my opinion, develops all its subtlety in connection with doubtful points. For instance, while it is absurd to place a circumflex over all long syllables, since the quantity of most syllables is obvious from the very nature of the word which is written, it is all the same occasionally necessary, since the same letter involves a different meaning according as it is long or short. For example, we determine whether malus is to mean an apple tree or a bad man by the use of the circumflex. Palus means a stake if the first syllable is long, a marsh if it be short. Again, when the same letter is short in the nominative and long in the ablative, we generally require the circumflex to make it clear which quantity to understand. Similarly, it has been held that we should observe distinctions such as the following. If the preposition X is compounded with specto, there will be an S in the second syllable, while there will be no S if it is compounded with pecto. Again, the following distinction has frequently been observed. Ad is spelt with a D when it is a preposition, but with a T when it is a conjunction, while cum is spelt cum when it denotes time, but cum when it denotes accompaniment. Still more pedantic are the practices of making the fourth letter of quidquid a C to avoid the appearance of repeating a question, and of writing quotidie instead of quotidie to show that it stands for quot diebus. But such practices have disappeared into the limbo of absurdities. It is often debated whether in our spelling of prepositions we should be guided by their sound when compounded or separate. For instance, when I say obtain wheat, logic demands that the second letter should be a B, while to the ear the sound is rather that of P. Or again, take the case of immunis. The letter N, which is required by strict adherence to fact, is forced by the sound of the M, which follows, to change into another M. We must also note, when analyzing compound words, whether the middle consonant adheres to the preceding syllable or to that which follows. For example, since the latter part of haruspex is from spectare, the s must be assigned to the third syllable. In abstemius, on the other hand, it will go with the first syllable, since the word is derived from abstinentia temeti, abstention from wine. As for k, my view is that it should not be used at all, except in such words as may be indicated by the letter standing alone as an abbreviation. I mention the fact because some hold that k should be used whenever the next letter is an a, despite the existence of the letter c, which maintains its force in conjunction with all the vowels. 
Orthography, however, is also the servant of usage, and therefore undergoes frequent change. I make no mention of the earliest times when our alphabet contained fewer letters, and their shapes differed from those which we now use, while their values also were different. For instance, in Greek, the letter O was sometimes long and short, as it is with us, and again was sometimes used to express the syllable, which is identical with its name. And in Latin, ancient writers ended a number of words with D, as may be seen on the column adorned with the beaks of ships, which was set up in the forum in honor of Duilius. Sometimes again, they gave words a final G, as we may still see in the shrine of the sun, close to the temple of Quirinus, where we find the word Vesperug, which we write Vesperugo, evening star. I have already spoken of the interchange of letters, and need not repeat my remarks here. Perhaps their pronunciation corresponded with their spelling. For a long time the doubling of semi-vowels was avoided, while down to the time of Osseus and beyond, long syllables were indicated by repetition of the vowel. The practice of joining E and I, as in the Greek diphthong, A, lasted longer. It served to distinguish cases and numbers, for which we may compare the instructions of Lysilius. The boys are come. Why then their names must end with E and I to make them more than one? And later, if to a thief and liar, mendaki furique, you would give, in E and I your thief must terminate. But this addition of E is quite superfluous, since I can be long no less than short. It is also at times inconvenient, for in those words which end in I and have E as their last letter but one, we shall on this principle have to write E twice. I refer to words such as aure or argente and the like. Now, such a practice will be an actual hindrance to those who are learning to read. This difficulty occurs in Greek as well, in connection with the addition of an iota, which is employed not merely in the termination of the dative, but is sometimes found in the middle of words, as in lestes, for the reason that the analysis applied by etymology shows the word to be a trisyllable, and requires the addition of that letter. The diphthong I, now written with an E, was pronounced in old days as I. Some wrote I in all cases, as in Greek. Others confined its use to the dative and genitive singular. Whence it comes that Virgil, always a passionate lover of antiquity, incited Pictae Westis and Aquae in his poems. But in the plural they used E and wrote Sulai, Galbai. Lucilius has given instructions on this point also. His instructions occupy quite a number of verses, for which the incredulous may consult his ninth book. Again, in Cicero's days and a little later, it was the almost universal practice to write a double S whenever that letter occurred between two long vowels or after a long vowel, as for example in causae, casus, divisiones. That he and Virgil both used this spelling is shown by their own autograph manuscripts. And yet, at a slightly earlier date, uc, which we write with a double s, was spelled with only one. Further, optimus maximus, which older writers spelled with a u, appear for the first time with an I, such at any rate is the tradition, in an inscription of Gaius Caesar. 
we now write here but i still find in manuscript of the old comic poets phrases such as heri ad me venit and the same spelling is found in letters of augustus written or corrected by his own hand again did not cato the censor spell dicam and faciam as dicam and faciam and observe the same practice in words of similar termination this is clear from old manuscripts of his works and is recorded by Messala in his treatise on the letter s Sibe and quasi are found in many books but i cannot say whether the authors wish them to be spelled thus i learned from pedianus that livy whose proceeding he himself adopted used this spelling today we make these words end with an i what shall i say of vorticis vorsus and the like which scipio africanus is said to have been the first to spell with an e my own teachers spelt servus and kervus with a u o in order that the repetition of the vowel might not lead to the coalescence and confusion of the two sounds today however we write these words with a double u on the principle which i have already stated neither spelling however exactly expresses the pronunciation it was not without reason that claudius introduced the iolic digamma to represent this sound it is a distinct improvement that today we spell hui as i have written it when i was a boy it used to be spelled hui giving it a very full sound merely to distinguish it from hui again what of words whose spelling is at variance with their pronunciation for example c is used as an abbreviation for gaius and when inverted stands for a woman for as we know from the words of the marriage service women used to be called gaii just as men were called gaii naius too in the abbreviation indicating the prenomen is spelt in a manner which does not agree with its pronunciation we also find columna and consul spelt without an n while subura when indicated by three letters is spelt s u c i could quote many other examples of this but i fear that i have already said too much on so trivial a theme on all such subjects the teacher must use his own judgment for in such matters it should be the supreme authority for my own part i think that within the limits prescribed by usage words should be spelt as they are pronounced for the use of letters is to preserve the sound of words and to deliver them to readers as a sacred trust consequently they ought to represent the pronunciation which we are to use these are the most important points in connection with writing and speaking correctly i do not go so far as to deny to the teacher of literature all part in the two remaining departments of speaking and writing with elegance and significance but i reserve these for a more important portion of this work as i have still to deal with the duties of the teacher of rhetoric i am however haunted by the thought that some readers will regard what i have said as trivial details which are only likely to prove a hindrance to those who are intent upon a greater task and i myself do not think that we should go so far as to lose our sleep of nights or quibble like fools over such minutiae for such studies make mincemeat of the mind but it is only the superfluities of grammar that do any harm i ask you is cicero a less great orator for having given this science his diligent attention 
or for having, as his letters show, demanded rigid correctness of speech from his son? Or was the vigor of Gaius Caesar's eloquence impaired by the publication of a treatise on analogy? Or the polish of Messala dimmed by the fact that he devoted whole books to the discussion not merely of single words, but of single letters? Such studies do no harm to those who but pass through them. It is only the pedantic stickler who suffers. Chapter 8 Reading Remains for Consideration in this connection, there is much that can only be taught in actual practice, as, for instance, when the boy should take breath, at what point he should introduce a pause into a line, where the sense ends or begins, when the voice should be raised or lowered, and when he should increase or slacken speed, or speak with greater or less energy. In this portion of my work, I will give but one golden rule. To do all these things, he must understand what he reads. But, above all, his reading must be manly, combining dignity and charm. It must be different from the reading of prose, for poetry is song, and poets claim to be singers. But this fact does not justify degenerating into sing-song or the effeminate modulations now in vogue. There is an excellent saying on this point attributed to Gaius Caesar while he was still a boy. If you are singing, you sing badly. If you are reading, you sing. Again, I do not, like some teachers, wish character as revealed by speeches seem to be indicated as it is by the comic actor, though I think that there should be some modulation of the voice to distinguish such passages from those where the poet is speaking in person. There are other points where there is much need of instruction. Above all, unformed minds, which are liable to be all the more deeply impressed by what they learn in their days of childish ignorance, must learn not merely what is eloquent it is even more important that they should study what is morally excellent it is therefore an admirable practice which now prevails to begin by reading homer and virgil although the intelligence needs to be further developed for the full appreciation of their merits but there is plenty of time for that since the boy will read them more than once in the meantime let his mind be lifted by the sublimity of heroic verse, inspired by the greatness of its theme, and imbued with the loftiest sentiments. The reading of tragedy also is useful, and lyric poets will provide nourishment for the mind, provided not merely the authors be carefully selected, but also the passages from their works which are to be read. For the Greek lyric poets are often licentious, and even in Horace there are passages which I should be unwilling to explain to a class. Elegiacs, however, more especially erotic elegy, and hendecasyllables, which are merely sections of Sotadian verse, concerning which latter I need give no admonitions, should be entirely banished if possible. If not absolutely banished, they should be reserved for pupils of a less impressionable age. As to comedy, whose contribution to eloquence may be of no small importance, since it is concerned with every kind of character and emotion, I will shortly point out in its due place what use can, in my opinion, be made of it in the education of boys. As soon as we have no fear of contaminating their morals, it should take its place among the subjects which it is especially desirable to read. I speak of Menander, though I would not exclude others. 
for Latin authors will also be of some service. But the subjects selected for lectures to boys should be those which will enlarge the mind and provide the greatest nourishment to the intellect. Life is quite long enough for the subsequent study of those other subjects which are concerned with matters of interest solely to learned men. But even the old Latin poets may be of great value, in spite of the fact that their strength lies in their natural talent rather than in their art. Above all, they will contribute richness of vocabulary, for the vocabulary of the tragedians is full of dignity, while in that of the comedians there is a certain elegance and attic grace. They are, too, more careful about dramatic structure than the majority of moderns, who regard epigram as the sole merit of every kind of literary work. For purity, at any rate, and manliness, if I may say so, we must certainly go to these writers, since today even our style of speaking is infected with all the faults of modern decadence. Finally, we may derive confidence from the practice of the greatest orators, of drawing up the early poets to support their arguments or adorn their eloquence. For we find, more especially in the pages of Cicero, but frequently in Asinius and in other orators of that period, quotations from Aeneas, Osseus, Pacuvius, Lucilius, Terence, Cecilius, and others, inserted, not merely to show the speaker's learning, but to please his hearers as well, since the charms of poetry provide a pleasant relief from the severity of forensic eloquence. Such quotations have the additional advantage of helping the speaker's case, for the orator makes use of the sentiments expressed by the poet as evidence in support of his own statements. But while my earlier remarks have special application to the education of boys, those which I have just made apply rather to persons of riper years, for the love of letters and the value of reading are not confined to one's school days, but end only with life. In lecturing, the teacher of literature must give attention to minor points as well. He will ask his class, after analyzing a verse, to give him the parts of speech and the peculiar features of the feat which it contains. These letters should be so familiar with poetry as to make their presence desired even in the prose of oratory. He will point out what words are barbarous, what improperly used, and what are contrary to the laws of language. He will not do this by way of censuring the poets for such peculiarities, for poets are usually the servants of their meters, and are allowed such license that faults are given other names when they occur in poetry. For we style them metaplasms, schematisms, and schemata, as I have said, and make a virtue of necessity. Their aim will rather be to familiarize the pupil with the artifices of style and to stimulate his memory. Further, in the elementary stages of such instruction, it will not be unprofitable to show the different meanings which may be given to each word. With regards to glossemata, that is to say, words not in common use, the teacher must exercise no ordinary diligence, while still greater care is required in teaching all the tropes which are employed for the adornment, more especially of poetry, but of oratory as well, and in making his class acquainted with the two sorts of schemata or figures, known as figures of speech and figures of thought. 
I shall, however, postpone discussion of tropes and figures till I come to deal with the various ornaments of style. Above all, he will impress upon their minds the value of proper arrangement and of graceful treatment of the matter in hand. He will show what is appropriate to the various characters, what is praiseworthy in the thoughts or words, where copious diction is to be commended and where restrained. In addition to this, he will explain the various stories that occur. This must be done with care, but should not be encumbered with superfluous detail. For it is sufficient to set forth the version which is generally received, or at any rate rests upon good authority. But to ferret out everything that has ever been said on the subject, even by the most worthless of writers, is a sign of tiresome pedantry or empty ostentation, and results in delaying and swamping the mind when it would be better employed on other themes. The man who pours over every page, even though it be wholly unworthy of reading, is capable of devoting his attention to the investigation of old wives' tales. And yet the commentaries of teachers of literature are full of such encumbrances to learning, and strangely unfamiliar to their own authors. It is, for instance, recorded that Didymus, who was unsurpassed for the number of books which he wrote, on one occasion objected to some story as being absurd, whereupon one of his own books was produced which contained the story in question. Such abuses occur chiefly in connection with fabulous stories, and are sometimes carried to ludicrous or even scandalous extremes, for in such cases the more unscrupulous commentator has such full scope for invention that he can tell lies to his heart's content about whole books and authors without fear of detection, for what never existed can obviously never be found, whereas if the subject is familiar, the careful investigator will often detect the fraud. Consequently, I shall count it a merit in a teacher of literature that there should be some things which he does not know. CHAPTER Nine. I have now finished with two of the departments with which teachers of literature profess to deal, namely, the art of speaking correctly and the interpretation of authors. The former they call methodike, the latter historike. We must, however, add to their activities instruction in certain rudiments of oratory, for the benefit of those who are not yet ripe for the schools of rhetoric. Their pupils should learn to paraphrase Aesop's fables, the natural successors of the fairy stories of the nursery, in simple and restrained language, and subsequently to set down this paraphrase in writing with the same simplicity of style. They should begin by analyzing each verse, then give its meaning in different language, and finally proceed to a freer paraphrase in which they will be permitted now to abridge and now to embellish the original so far as this may be done without losing the poet's meaning. This is no easy task, even for the expert instructor, and the pupil who handles it successfully will be capable of learning everything. He should also be set to write aphorisms, moral essays, chriai, and delineations of character, etologiae, of which the teacher will first give the general scheme, since such themes will be drawn from their reading. In all of these exercises, the general idea is the same, but the form differs. Aphorisms are general propositions, while etologiae 
are concerned with persons. Of moral essays there are various forms. Some are akin to aphorisms, and commence with a simple statement, he said, or he used to say. Others give the answer to a question, and begin, on being asked, or in answer to this he replied, while a third, and not dissimilar type, begins, when someone has said or done something. Some hold that a moral essay may take some action as its text. Take, for example, the statement, Crates, on seeing an ill-educated boy, beat his paidagogus. Or a very similar example, which they do not venture actually to propose as a theme for a moral essay, but content themselves with saying that it is of the nature of such a theme, namely, Milo, having accustomed himself to carrying a calf every day, ended by carrying it when grown to a bull. All these instances are couched in the same grammatical form, and deeds no less than sayings may be presented for treatment. Short stories from the poets should, in my opinion, be handled not with a view to style, but as a means of increasing knowledge. Other, more serious and ambitious tasks have been also imposed on teachers of literature by the fact that Latin rhetoricians will have nothing to do with them. Greek rhetoricians have a better comprehension of the extent and nature of the tasks placed on their shoulders. End of chapter 9